So here we are, downstream from a massive command that Paul gave in chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians. Here's what he said. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ. Which means, Christian, your life, the way that you live your life should match the worth of the Gospel of Christ. That's a massive command that my life as a Christian and your life as a Christian should match the worth of the Gospel of Christ. It never will. Because the the worth of the Gospel is infinite. You can't quantify the worth of the Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ that He came and lived and suffered and died and rose again on behalf of sinners like you and me so that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to God. The value of that, the worth of that is infinite. So my life could never somehow match the worth of that. But that's exactly what Paul is calling us to do. To live our life in a way that matches the worth of the Gospel. The infinite worth of the Gospel should not make us as Christians just throw our hands and say, well, I give up then because I'll never match that the infinite worth of the Gospel should motivate us. It should motivate us to strive. It should motivate us to live in a way that reflects the the impact that the Gospel has made on you. So, That is the earthquaking exhortation that Paul gave in 1 verse 27. And he expands on it all the way down into chapter 2 verse 18. That's what he's doing. Which means that this morning we are right in the middle of that elaboration on what it means to live your life in a way that matches the worth of the Gospel. Paul is teaching you and me. He's teaching us how to live a life worthy of the Gospel of Christ. He is teaching us how to live for Christ. He is teaching us how to live in such a way that is for our good and is for God's glory. He is teaching us how to live in such a way that God will be most glorified and you will be most happy. Is what Paul is expanding on. So, here is the outline that I see in our verses today. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is where we are. And I see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, 
four incentives and three exhortations. I see four incentives in verse 1 and then three exhortations in verses 2 through 4. Or if you like, three expectations of us in verses 2 through 4 and four motivations for us in verse 1. Here are the three expectations that Paul has. Unity, humility, and helpfulness. Unity, humility, and helpfulness. Those are the expectations that Paul has for us in verses 2 through 4. But first, he lists four incentives in verse 1. And here are the four incentives. Encouragement, because you are in Christ. Comfort, from God's love. Fellowship with Christians by the Holy Spirit. And affection and mercy from God the Father. That is where we are headed this morning. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Word and thank You for time now to read it. And if You would help us to understand it and to apply it. God, we pray that our minds would be sharpened and enlightened. We pray that our heart and our affections would be stirred. And we pray that our wills would be bent toward pleasing and glorifying You. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 2. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find it on page 636. Philippians chapter 2. And again, we're in verses 1 through 4. So let's look at this together. So... Now we do this often. We just read one word, one small little word, and we stop. And you're thinking, we're going to be here all day. I promise we're not going to be here all day. But this small word at the beginning of verse 1 is the Greek word un, and it is an important word. It is Paul's way of telling his readers, of telling us that our verses today, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, logically flow from the verses before. That's all that word is telling us. Keep it all in context, it's telling us. What we're reading now logically flows from what the verses before said. In those verses, which if you were with us, we studied last week, we learned that what? Belief in Christ and suffering for Christ are both gracious gifts from God. So here is the connection formed by this word, so. You and I, Christians, you have been granted belief in Christ and suffering for Christ. Therefore, or so, 
you have enormous incentives to live in a certain way. That's the connection. Because God has graciously, Christian, granted you belief in Christ and suffering for Christ. Therefore, you have, and he's going to list them, enormous incentives and motivations to live your life in a certain way. And so the certain way to live will be given in verses 2 through 4. That's the exhortation, the expectation. But first, here in verse 1 are the incentives that Paul gives. So let's keep reading. Verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, there they are. Did you hear them? There they are. Paul just gave four incentives, didn't he? He just gave four motivations. Let's look at them one at a time. If there is any, what's the first thing he says? Encouragement in Christ. So here is incentive number one. It is encouragement because you are in Christ. One of the ways the Bible describes a Christian is that a Christian is in Christ. If you're not a Christian, you're outside of Christ. And the biblical picture is that if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, there is special encouragement that comes your way. That's what Paul's talking about. Encouragement because you are in Christ. So let's think about encouragement. Encouragement is something that comes to you when, well, when you're lacking courage. It comes to you when you're lacking courage or when you are discouraged. When you are afflicted and you are in need of things like confidence and strength. Think about these times in your life. Maybe it's recent. Maybe it's today. When you are in need of confidence when you are in need of strength. You feel weak. So here, Paul is talking about the encouragement that we have because we are in Christ. It works like this. God comes to His adopted children. That's what we are as Christians. God comes to His adopted children by His Holy Spirit, through His Holy Word, and He ministers to us. He ministers to us and He lifts us up with the courage we need and with the strength we need to press on. Friends, have you experienced this? It is an incentive. 
It is motivation. There's a second incentive. Paul also says in verse 1, if there is any comfort from love. So incentive number two is comfort from God's love. Comfort from God's love. The Greek word here is agape. Some of you have heard of that. It refers to a a sacrificial love. A love that gives itself up for the beloved. And the Greek word here for comfort is a feeling. This is talking about a feeling. The Bible actually talks a lot about feelings. And there is a feeling of comfort. There is a feeling of consolation. So listen, sometimes you need encouragement, but sometimes you need comfort. Sometimes you need consolation. And for the Christian, great comfort is found when God comes near. When God comes near. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and He saves the crushed in spirit. That is tenderness. Our God is tender with His people. And there is, when God is tender with His people, the result is a Christian feels something. This is not just the reality of objective truth. This is a subjective feeling when you are, through God's ministry to you, comforted by God's love. When you are reminded of God's love for you. But not just reading about it in the Bible. Not just reading about it in a book. Not just having a friend tell you that God loves you. But it is a feeling of comfort and consolation. I don't just know it up here. I know it in my heart. And I feel right now so comforted because in spite of everything that is going on around me, I know as deeply as I can know that God has love for me. What is the result? Comfort is the result. Consolation is the result. Have you experienced this? Comfort from God's love. It is an incentive. Paul is showing us. It is a motivation to something. Now, there are two more incentives that we're going to look at. But do you see what Paul is doing here? Think about this with me for just a minute before we move on to the next two incentives. Paul is making an emotional appeal. I tell you, the things that Paul is doing here, I used to think were not Christian. I don't know where I got that, but I did. 
But there's no getting around that Paul is making an emotional appeal. He is appealing to experience. And I thought you could only appeal to facts, like objective facts that I can read to you from God's Word. And that's wonderful. But this is something different that Paul's doing here. Paul is not going back to biblical truths. He is taking the Philippians and you and me back to our experiences that we have had with God. And that's going to be the incentive and the motivation. So he is appealing to experience. This is what he is. It's like he's saying this. Think about what you have experienced yourself. And we could do that. Think about what you have experienced yourself. Think about how God has made you feel. We can say that. Think about how God has made you feel. Think about these things and you will be motivated. You will be incentivized. This is a wise and kind way for Paul to deal with the Philippians. This is a wise and kind way for God to deal with His children. This is not just bare instruction. God is not just saying, do it. Paul is not just giving the exhortation to the Philippians. He's not just saying, do it. That's how I want to talk. He's giving them incentives to do it. He's giving them motivations to do it. God is not, and God does not just say, do it. And he could, if anybody can say, because I said so, it's God. I, mean, I hope you don't use that. You really can't use that. But God doesn't even just say, do it. He says, do it. And now let me help you do it. Think about this. Let me help you do it. And so Paul is He's pleading with the Philippians here. He is reasoning with the Philippians. He is giving them the right things to think about that will make obedience easier. Let that sink in. He is giving them right experiences that they have had to think about that will make obedience easier. Because we can admit, can't we? Obedience is what? It's hard. It is difficult. And there is more to it than just do it. How? How do I do this? This is a wise and kind way for Paul to deal with the Philippians. It is a wise and kind way for God to deal with His children. And I think this is also a wise and kind way for you to deal with your children. 
We make application a lot here for parents, especially with little kids, for obvious reasons. This is a wise and kind way to deal with your children. It is true. Your children need to obey you for no other reason than it is the right thing to do. That is absolutely true. But do you also plead with your children? We're talking about begging. It's not what Paul is doing. Do you plead with your children? Do you reason with your children? Do you help them to understand why they must do what they must do? Do you help them to do what they must do? I mean, consider your own obedience, mom and dad. Does it come easy for you? I confess I can be so arrogant with my kids. What's the problem? Why won't you just obey me? And I wonder how God feels. We see our children do things sometimes and say things to ourselves or to our spouse. You know, we gasp. I can't believe they just said that. I can't believe they just did that. Really? Because I just did that. And I'm 40. And I just did that. I mean, in a more, I'm more sophisticated with sin. And I know how to hide it better. But I do the same thing. There's pride in that. So listen, there is a time for correction and there is a time for encouragement. And a wise parent uses both. A wise parent uses both. So here Paul is encouraging what think about this, what motivates you to live for Christ? Is it just being told to live for Christ? Is just being told the right thing to do and that's all there is to it? That's it? That's all I need? I just needed the knowledge of what the right thing to do is? No, actually, when I learn what the right thing to do is, there's something in me that wants to do the opposite. And this is what the law provokes in you and in me. Or are you not, as I am, helped by God to obey God as you understand more fully beautiful incentives and motivations. Incentives like these. So here is something else Paul says in verse 4. It's the third incentive. If there is any participation in the Spirit. So incentive number three. What is this? I think it's fellowship with Christians by the Holy Spirit. This word for participation. Some of your Bibles translate it fellowship it implies a shared life a shared life you are in fellowship with people you share your life with that's what it means you are in fellowship with people you share your life with and christians are in fellowship with one another 
And the Bible says that is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, and I won't presume to understand this, but the Holy Spirit has a, a way of, of bonding and knitting people together. It happens between a husband and a wife. It happens in families. It happens in a church family. And so the result is that we are in participation with one another. We are in fellowship with one another. The same Holy Spirit that is in me is the same Holy Spirit that is in you. You don't have a different version. No upgrades. The same Holy Spirit that is in you is the same Holy Spirit that is indwelling me. And He brings us together. What that means is this. Whether you feel this way or not, if you are here and you are a Christian, you belong. Now notice I said whether you feel this way or not. Because you may not always feel that way. And sometimes, unfortunately, other Christians may do things to make you not feel that way. But the truth is that if you are here and you are a Christian, you belong. We're in fellowship with one another. We are in participation with one another. Derek Thomas, he's a pastor, theologian, professor. And he has a great conversion story where he was reading a little book by an author named John Stott, which prompted him to buy a Bible. And he went to buy a Bible and all he could find was a children's Bible. And he read it and was converted. Well, he was the only Christian in his family. Parents weren't Christians, siblings weren't Christians, friends weren't Christians. And so he talks about and describes how the church, the local church especially, became his new family. Have you experienced this? It is an incentive. It is motivation. And finally, Paul says, if there is any affection and sympathy. So incentive number four, affection and mercy from God the Father. The word here for affection is actually translated literally bowels. Or intestines. There were more jokes than I can count that made it onto my rough draft of this sermon. None of which you will hear. In fact, if you have a King James Version, this verse says bowels and mercies. The bowels and thank God for your bowels and mercies. When you, here's the, here's the meaning, when you really love someone, sometimes you feel it in your stomach. I don't know if you've experienced that. Call it butterflies. When you are with someone that you love. When your love for them is stirred up. Feel butterflies in your stomach. It's actually something happening in your body. I read about it this week. Blood leaves your organs and goes to your limbs. 
Sometimes it's because you're going to need to, in some situations, run. Sometimes you're going to need to defend yourself. Adrenaline is released in your body. And what happens is in your stomach, you feel what we call butterflies. Your bowels. Deep affection. Deep love. God loves you deeply. That's what this word affection means. He loves you deeply. His love for you, His affection for you is at the bottom of His sympathy toward you. The bottom of His mercy toward you. Have you experienced this? God's affection for you. God's mercy toward you. It is an incentive. It is motivation. So that concludes Paul's uh, appeal. That's first part of the sermon. Those are the four incentives. And, and now he will move on to his exhortation. His logic is basically this. If, if you experienced the love of God and others, then love God and others. That's basically his logic here. If you have been given so much, then now give. That's the logic here. So think about your experiences in Christ and what you've been given and received. And now the exhortation is going to be now give that. Don Carson said, It is always deeply disturbing to find some professed Christians, members of the church, who think only of what they get. What a pathetically Christ-denying attitude. Give and give and give. We are called not only to enjoy the comforts of the Gospel, but also to pass them on. So the question for us to ask ourselves before we move on to Paul's exhortation is have we experienced the deep love of God? Just think about that for a moment. Has he been good to you? How has he saved you? How has He spared you? How has He delivered you? What has He given you? What have you received from His hand? Think about this. That's Paul's appeal. Will these experiences motivate you and motivate me to live for Christ. Now, young people who are here this morning, teenagers and younger, we're so glad you're here with us every week. You probably have not had a lot of these experiences yet. You probably had some, but you're young. Probably haven't had as many of these experiences of being encouraged in Christ and comforted by God's love 
as maybe I have or maybe your mom and dad have. You're under their provision and you're under their care. And they've provided so much for you. They've protected you from so much. But I pray that you will experience these graces of God. And I pray that as you experience the deep love of God, you will be motivated to love God and to love others. So we think about these things. And now moving along in verses 2 through 4, we have Paul's exhortation or Paul's expectations. I said there were three things. We'll summarize them. Unity, verse 2. Humility, verse 3. And helpfulness, verse 4. We could use different words. Those are the words I was most helped by. when I read a sermon this last week written by Ligon Duncan. But he used those words, unity, humility, and helpfulness. I think it's right on. Let's look at exhortation number one, unity. I'll read the incentives and then verse two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by, and here's how Paul describes unity, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Three things he says. First, he says, being of the same mind. Which basically means like-mindedness. We need to be like-minded. It doesn't mean that we have the same mind on everything. We don't all think the same way about everything. We don't all like the Sacramento Kings. We don't all enjoy reading a book. We don't all think that a ribeye is the absolute best cut of red meat on the planet. We don't all parent our children in exactly the same way. We have different opinions here. We have different ideas here. But we are or we should be like-minded. We should be of the same mind. We should have the same basic outlook on life. We should have the same ultimate values. We should have the same ultimate loves. We should all have, Paul will talk about this in verses to come, the mind of Christ. We should all have the same view of things that are made so clear in God's Word. We should be of the same mind when it comes to sin, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to the church. If you remember here, you know that you read and agreed to our church member doctrinal statement. These are for us as a church non-negotiables. And we are of the same mind as a church when it comes to those doctrinal points. 
We're like-minded. Paul also says having the same love. We should also have flowing from us the same love we have received. Look with me. The love that Paul mentioned in verse 2 is the love that he means here. Our hearts are together. Our love is for one another. Our affections are for God and they are for one another. And then finally he says, being in full accord and of one mind. Which is a bit more than what he already said. And I think this has to do with purpose. It has to do with our purpose. We share the same purpose. Which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So unity is what Paul is describing here. There will be unity in the Philippian church. There will be unity in Veritas church. If we have the same mind, if we have the same love, and if we have the same purpose. So it's an encouragement to unity that Paul is giving. Also, secondly, humility. Humility. Let's read the verses together. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by, verse 3 now, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Every action starts in your heart. Proverbs 4 says your heart is the wellspring of life. Matthew 12 says that is the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mark 7 says all sin comes from within a man out of his heart. The heart is the, biblically speaking, the core of your being. It is the fountainhead of your words and your actions. It all starts in your heart. So what Paul is saying here is here's what must not be in your heart. And here's what must be in your heart. What must not be in our hearts is what? Selfish, ambition, and conceit. Selfish ambition refers to a strong personal drive without moral inhibitions. And conceit refers to empty vanity. Let's use another word. Selfishness. Selfishness. Nothing will destroy a relationship faster than selfishness. Nothing will destroy a church faster than selfishness. Nothing will ruin a Christian's witness faster than selfishness. Is it about you or is it about God and others? 
Paul says what must not be in our heart is selfishness. What must be in our heart is humility. In humility, Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves. John Stott said, in every aspect of the Christian life, pride is our greatest foe and humility our greatest ally. Humility means that you and I have a sober view of ourselves as a creature and a sinner. You are a creature. I am a creature. I am not a creator. I have been created. And you and I, while we are also saints, we are sinners. I must keep this in mind. I have to remember this if there will be any humility in me. And then this is great. Paul gives us a very helpful and concrete exhortation. It's very concrete. In other words, here is what you and I need to do. He's very practical here. If there's humility in our heart, here's what's going to happen in our heart. We need to count others as more significant than ourselves. We need to see others as better. We need to see others as more important. We need to see others as more significant. We must constantly be evaluating the worth of others in God's eyes and then treating them accordingly. Count others, Paul says, as more significant than yourself. That is not selfishness. That is not considering myself. That's considering others. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the comedian Brian Regan. I think for the most part I could recommend him. He's one of the few clean comedians out there. But he has a bit where he talks about the selfish guy at dinner parties. And he calls him the, the me monster. And some of you can be the me monster. Or some of you know the me monster. And maybe it's the person that you're interacting with and everything is always about them. They ask very few questions because if they were to ask a question, you'd have to talk. So very few questions. They're doing all the talking and if maybe you're at a dinner party with them, you see them and they're just sort of waiting for you to finish what you're saying so that they can start talking. And if you've got a story, they always have one better. And they might say something after your great story like that's nothing. So Brian Regan, it's funny, he has this, what he calls a social fantasy about being one of the men who has walked on the moon. 
And being able to just sit back in front of one of these me monsters and just let them go on and on and on and on and then look at them and say, well, I walked on the moon. <laughs> Conversation over. Don't be a me monster. The world revolves around a me monster, but actually everything revolves around God. Nothing revolves around me. Nothing revolves around you. Everything revolves around God. He is at the center. And you will actually be happiest when you realize that and get out of the way. Humility. And then finally, number three. Helpfulness. Let's read it together again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So put it together. Put these three expectations together. If, if we are united, if we are humble, we will be helpful. We will be helpful. We will look to the interest of others. So will we do this? Will you do this as an individual? Will we do this as a church? Will we not be selfish? Will we look out for others and especially those who are in our church family? Will we ask questions like, how can I meet the needs of others or also how can I bless others? How can I demonstrate my love for others? Some of you I know our family knows from personal experience are so wonderful at this. You are so good at this. Looking out for the interest of others. The rest of us could learn so much from you. Will we do this? Will we count others as more significant and then look out for those interests instead of our own? Will we deny ourselves? Will we take up our cross daily? Will we look for opportunities to put ourselves out of the way so that others can be brought in? What do you say to yourself when you wake up in the morning? I know that I naturally say, how will I serve myself today? But when you wake up, do you think, how will I serve God today? How will I serve others today? Now remember, what has Paul done before he's given us this, this high calling? He's appealed to what Christ has done for us. Saying, remember, think about the encouragement that you've received from Christ. Remember the comfort that you've received from God's love. Remember the fellowship that you have with Christians and how they have loved you. Remember God's affection for you. Remember His sympathy for you. Remember points in your life where you experienced these things and now be united. Be humble. That should be the result. And look to serve 
others. Look to help others. That should be our goal. Not to serve myself, but to be spent. To be spent for others. To serve others. So many moms are so good at this. Saved by God, wired by God to be. Genesis 2.19 says helpers suitable, helpers fit. Such wonderful, amazing helpers. So many moms who it becomes through Christ this instinct to give themselves up on a daily basis for their families. And we are blessed here in this church to have so many examples of this. This self-abandonment. And it's beautiful. I'll see it on my wife's face at the end of the day. It's a, it's a look. She doesn't have to say anything. I'll see it on her face. About 8.30 p.m., 9 p.m. And she is spent. Or she might look at me and she'll say, I'm done. I've given all that I have. There's nothing left. I can't have another conversation. <laughs> I can't do one more thing. And I know. Now, what's beautiful about that is that she has given everything that she had all day long. And she's done. That's what we're all called to. We wake up. Lord, use me. Spend me. What I have is not mine. The money I have, the energy I have, the brains I have, the abilities I have, none of it is mine. It all belongs to you. It's for you and it's for others. How can I spend my day loving and serving others, whoever you are and whatever you do? We're called by Paul to helpfulness. So a summary of what Paul is saying in verses 1 through 4 is enjoy the comforts of the gospel and then pass them on. Don't have it stop and terminate with you. Enjoy the comforts of the gospel, but then pass these comforts of the gospel on. To your family, to your neighbors, to your people at work, to your church, and on and on. Enjoy the comforts of the gospel and then pass them on. In conclusion, to help with the application of all this, let me pass along something I hope you will find helpful. Here are, and I'm just going to run through these quickly, but here are, I have seven Ways that you can cultivate humility. And if you'd like to give this more attention, 
I would recommend a great little book called Humility by C.J. Mahaney. Most of this is from that. If you want to give it more attention. But here they are quickly. How do I cultivate humility? That, that considers others better than me. That looks to the interest of others more than my own. How do I do that? Number one, reflect on the cross. Reflect on the cross. Think about what Christ has done for you. Many years ago, Don Carson, who I've already mentioned, he interviewed a man named Carl Henry, who was arguably one of the most influential Christians in the English-speaking language in the latter half of the 20th century. So he asked Carl Henry, who had accomplished so much, this was before he died, he had accomplished so much, and he, he asked him in this, in this public interview an embarrassing question, sort of, how have you stayed so humble? Because he was. He was just a soft-spoken, humble man, but he had every reason to be proud. He had accomplished more than any Christian. His response was great. He said, Don, just his, this was just his quick response. He said, Don, it is hard to be prideful when you are standing at the foot of the cross. So he just put himself in his place every day. I'm standing at the foot of the cross looking up at Jesus who has died for my sin and who has been raised that I may have new life. And all that I am and all that I have is because of Him. It's true, you can't stand there at the foot of the cross and be proud of anything. Number two, use the means of grace how do I cultivate humility in my life? Use the means of grace. If you don't know what the means of grace are, they are the things that you do through which you experience the favor of God. Things like reading your Bible. Things like praying. Things like being here in church. Things like singing these songs with your church family. Fellowshipping with other Christians. Coming forward and taking communion together. Practice these things. Use the means of grace. Number three, how do I cultivate humility? Study God. Study God. Get to know God. You, you can't do this enough in your life. This is why J.I. Packer wrote his book, Knowing God. He thought that many Christians were too quick to open their Bibles and, and ask the question, which is a good question, what does this say to me? about my daily life? That's a good question, but that's not the most important question. The most important question is, what does this say about God? Not just connecting the dots too early and figuring out what it means for me. It's just, who is God? That is the foundational question, the most important question. It puts everything else in perspective. Study God. Study His grace. Number four. Identify graces in others. This means to see and talk about the good in others. Learn to spot it. Some of you are too critical. And you see the negative in others before you see the good. You see what's wrong with somebody before you see what's good with somebody. And once you know what's wrong, it almost only eclipses anything that's good and right. See the good in others. Make a practice of seeing good in others. In your spouse, in your children, in your friends, in your co-workers, in your neighbors, in your church. 
spot it and talk about it. Talk about it to them. Talk about it to others. Have you noticed this? Have you seen this? Did you know about this? Identify graces in others. Number five, encourage and serve others daily. That's really the last exhortation that Paul gave. Just repeating it. Encourage and serve others daily. Men, when you are driving home from work at the end of the day, are you preparing to be served or to serve? Do you feel like you've done your duty? Now it's time to come home and put your feet up and the the game better be on and the meal better be hot and the kids better be quiet. Well, that's ungodly. That's ungodly. Or are you coming home prepared to serve? The prayer is very different then. It would sound like this in my head. Oh God, I just want to go home and sleep. But God, give me the strength and give me the conviction to serve my wife and to serve my children until I'm done. To be totally spent for you. Encourage and serve others daily. Two more. Number six, invite Pursue and welcome correction. By far the hardest one on here. Invite correction. Pursue it. Pursue correction. Welcome correction. This means asking people you love questions like, How am I doing? How could I improve? Whoever asks that question? You know why I don't ask that question? Because I don't want to know. Sinfully, I don't want to know. Pursue correction. Welcome correction. C.S. Lewis said, humility is actually quite a cheerful thing once you get past the initial shock. (laughs) Embrace correction. Embrace criticism. That's how you became a Christian. You learned you were criticized heavily. You're a sinner in need of salvation. Welcome correction. You want to know how to grow. You want to know how to mature. I've been corrected by my friends and rebuked by my friends. I've been corrected and rebuked by my wife. I've been corrected and rebuked by my children. It's so embarrassing. It is so embarrassing to be corrected by somebody. That's how I feel. So embarrassed. I deny it at first. And I think about it. I did do that. I did say that. Now I'm a Christian. How could I do that? How could I act like that? How could I say that? And I'm so embarrassed by it. And it's so good for me. So important for me. If I want to be humble. And then finally, number seven. Daily 
acknowledge your dependence on God. Daily acknowledge your dependence on God. Every day remind yourself just how dependent on God you are. Preach the gospel to yourself. You've heard us say that. One of my favorite quotes by Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, most of our unhappiness in life is because we listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. That's a big difference. You don't listen to yourself. You talk to yourself. You preach to yourself. You don't just listen to what you naturally come up with. Often not good. It's often not. It'll just drag you along through your day. Oh, you're this and you're that. And, well, and what about this? And you'll never be that. And he's this and she's that. And that's not going to work out. And this is hopeless. And well, there's no point here. And are you still trying to do that? And when are you going to give up? And we spend way too much time listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. Self. Jesus Christ died and rose again. Self. God has promised to keep you. Self. God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Self. God's mercies are new every single day. Self. God has a plan for you. Self. God is directing your steps today. Self. There is nothing in the universe that can separate you from the love of God. Self. You must live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Friends, daily acknowledge your dependence on God. So we must be united. We must be humble. We must be helpful. And the incentive and motivation is to sit and think about how good God has been to you. The encouragement you have in Christ. The comfort you have from His love. The fellowship you enjoy with other Christians by the Holy Spirit. And the affection and sympathy from God the Father. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, will You take this Word and take this truth and apply it to us? Help us, God, not to just hear these words, but to believe Your Word. To believe Your Word in such a way that we are changed, God. That we become more pleasing to You. That we become more glorifying to You. God, this day and in this church, we ask that You would increase our humility. God, our desire is to be a church family that is in fellowship with one another, that reflects and demonstrates to the world the impact that You have had on us. So God, we pray that you would continue to pour out your grace 
continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we may become more pleasing to You, our Father. And this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.